This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Last night, the United States brought the world's number one terrorist leader to justice. Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi is dead. He was the founder and leader of ISIS, the most ruthless and violent terror organization anywhere in the world. The United States has been searching for Baghdadi for many years. Capturing or killing Baghdadi has been the top national security priority of my administration. Paul Violis is a CBS News security consultant, an accomplished author, and a renowned global security and law enforcement expert. With over 35 years of experience, he's dedicated his life to finding solutions for the problems that keep you up at night. This is Security Matters with Paul Violas. Welcome to Security Matters, where your security matters most. I'm Paul Violas, and this is a CBS News Radio production. I want to start off by thanking everybody for hitting us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Uh, great comments, as always. I'm starting to address these questions live, and I really appreciate everybody writing in. It's a bit overwhelming, but it's cool, and uh, you guys are great. So a lot of questions, I don't know why this is of interest, but I'm learning. So I guess uh, some folks saw some pictures of me out with, uh, with, with my fellas out. We, you know, for those of you that have asked before, I get together with my closest friends once every month, month and a half in New York, and we go out to dinner and have a great time. And I guess a number of people have commented on the martini glass, you see. Well, the, and, and the question is, what do I drink? Well, the answer to that is I am a Kentucky guy. I'm a Kentucky bourbon guy, and I love Makers. So you may see the, the martini glass there, but trust me, Makers is the heart. That's the answer to that one. Don't know why that was of interest, but apparently it was. And uh, yes, I am certain that, you know, come happy hour today, I'll be filling up on a little Makers. So there we go. Today, a much more sobering uh, conversation, yet one that uh, we couldn't have uh, a better more qualified guest uh, that's going to bring us through this conversation. Today, a behind-the-scenes look at the mission that terminated the life of Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi. With us today, uh, as I said, humbled to have this gentleman with us today. With us today is retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Jim Reese. Colonel Reese spent 25 years in the great United States Army as its 75th Ranger Regiment and Delta Force, the U.S. Elite counterterrorist force. Colonel Reese also, and this is so important for everybody to understand, especially as our conversation today, also advised international leaders on six different continents and served in contingency operations in the Balkans and Colombia and combat operations in both Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Immediately following 9-11, the U.S. Secretary of Defense selected the colonel to serve as the lead advisor 
for special operations to the director of the CIA for operational planning and integration of CIA and military special operation elements in the invasion of Afghanistan and Operation Enduring Freedom. He is considered by many to be one of the greatest operators of our time. Colonel Reese, thank you so very much for taking the time to join us today. Paul, good morning. Thanks. It's an honor. Uh, Colonel, I want to just jump right into this out of respect for your time. And, and I know that we have just a ton of people that are leaning into the radio right now. So as a retired lieutenant colonel for the U.S. Army and a member of the famed Delta Force, you have an intimate understanding of what was required to successfully execute the mission on, on, on Baghdadi to the extent possible clearly to the extent possible. Please share with our listeners the planning and the skills of the operators that is required for such a mission. Yeah, Paul, I mean, that's a great question. We get asked this all the time. You know, I, the, the way I kind of describe this, and, and I can put it in different axioms, you know, to try to make people understand it. I mean, this is, these are guys that play the World Series every day. Um, these guys um, and gals train, um, they research, they understand, um, they can, the, the training is just, it's off the charts. Mm -hmm. It's, um, folks that are, you know, it's doctors that, you know, it's neurosurgeons that do brain surgery. That's what the type of level of training, the type of level of preparation, uh, the type of, the type of level of focus that goes into these operations. And these, these guys and gals do this so much over and over and over again that um, I hate to say this, but these type of operations almost become SOP for them. Sure. What I think will be, what I think will be interesting to watch here is, you know, you heard the president talk about it, and you're seeing it come out in the press right now is how they decided, you know, not to breach the door, which we've learned now for over what's it been almost 18 years. Um, you know, going through the doors are probably not the best way to do it because they're booby-trapped. But their ability to breach and to understand what those walls were, um, what those walls were made of, and how to do a surgical breach so that breach doesn't go in there and blast and kill non-combatants. It allows a breach to go in to give them a foothold and a breach point to get their assault force in, which really makes uh, the enemy have to fight in multiple multiple directions. It's really the only ones that can do this in the world. You know what's fascinating, um, Colonel, that, I, that, that I've learned, uh, and, and I obviously pale in comparison, but so much of what the public perceives us as public servants, um, as patriots, so much of what the public perceives is what they see on television and hear on radio, what they, what they watch in the movies. And, you know... Very little of that is actually true, and so much of it really goes unsaid. One of the things that we've seen of late is just um, a lot of talk about and a lot of a lot of um, a lot of movies, a, a lot of sensationalism also in movies and television about about military actions. But when you talk about Delta, let's just pause for a second. How old, how far back, when we talk about the United States Army, we talk about the backbone of the United States military. Uh, I think that's a fair statement. I love all of our branches, always will. Uh, but nonetheless, 
correct me if I'm wrong, Colonel, but as I look at the Army, we look at the history of the United States, we look at the backbone of the United States, uh, military, uh, how far back does Delta go? Yeah, so Delta came came into existence in 1974 from the um, you know the, the Iran hostage aspects. Right. Colonel Charles Beck, you know Car, uh, Colonel Charles uh, you know, Charlie Beckwith um, was a special forces officer. He was enamored and researched the British SAS and the SBS and how you know the United Kingdom had put together this you know this this special operation force that, um, you know, could do these type of things. Now, granted, I mean, you know, we had the Green Berets, we had the UDTs, uh, you know, the, the, the early days of the SEALs in right. Vietnam. But Beckwith really looked at, you know, it was, you know, the 70s, the 80s, you know, the rise of terrorism, hostage taking now was becoming, um, you know, cool for the bad guys. And he really had to look at, you know, how, you know, our army, our Department of Defense didn't have anything like the Brits did. And if you go back and read his book, uh, literally called The Delta Force, explains, you know, the hard work, you know, clawing every day to put this concept, uh, you know, in place. Right. And, you know, how they looked at the whole different the psychological aspects of operators, the age of operators, what they need to be able to do. And it, it truly is different than all the other different aspects of special operations. But, uh, you know, Charlie Beckwith really started it. And where it's come today, I mean... Um, I mean, you've 25 I, you know, years, I, you've I seen see, this evolve. Well, it's, I mean, from, I mean, I, I mean, I was talking to General Miller, you know, the commander in Afghanistan. I was his J3. Um, you know, I talked to some of my older buds who are out now. I mean, where we've come from 2001, from 9-11 to 2019, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Uh, and these operators today are, I mean, we thought we were good. My goodness. Uh, we're not even close. And it's funny when I went through, when I went through OTC, my OT, you know, the operators training course sure. instructors, um, that were gods to guys, you know, uh, and there's gods to them. And they said the same thing. They said, where you guys are now, we, we were, we, we had no talent. We did not have the talent that, uh, that you have now. And now I look at these operators today, and my God, I mean, you got to bow down to them because they're they're incredible. They yeah, really but you are. know what, you know what, Colonel, I, that's also part of the humility that goes into the DNA of our special forces regarding whatever branch of service it is, and I, and that's I think what you're saying that that's just a reflection of that humility as well, don't you? I mean, listen. You, the entire concept of team comes from our special forces, whether regardless of branch of service, that, that's where it comes from. There's no singular person in, the, in those groups. And, and, I, and I hear what you're saying, I, and I completely agree with that. I think one of the things, and I'd love your opinion on this before we get to the next question, is um, intellect. Oftentimes we think of special forces and we think of humans in physical condition that's unspeakable, right? Nobody. Is in, a, is in better physical condition than the members of our special forces. But I think what goes unnoticed and unspoken about is the intellect of our operators. How do you feel about that? I, well, I, I personally think that's more important than the physicality. Um, the, the, the mindsets, the, the, the trainability, the, the research ability, 
Um, these, these guys have PhDs. They really do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, how smart they are, how intellectual. I mean, I mean, when I commanded my troop, I mean, you, you turn around, you've got, uh, you know, out of 30 guys, you might have 20 sergeant majors and 10, you know, five master sergeants and five E7s, and they're all smarter than you. <laughs> you know, they need you like they need a hole in the head. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the mental veracity of these folks, I think, is much more important than the physicality. And I think that lead goes right into the next question, Colonel, I wanted to lob about you, and that is this. You mentioned the surgical breach. Now, coming back for all of our listeners, when, when a lot of what we saw on, on television and it was good, but let's, let's understand what we saw because there's so much more than that. Um, Colonel, you were talking about the surgical breach. Well, a lot of that, had to do with intel. Now, given your experience, certainly as an advisor to the director of the CIA, please explain how important the intelligence gathering process was for the deployment of this mission and for military operations in general. Uh, you know, Paul, I, I, I think it's important for our listeners. I think it's important for, you know, the next generation to understand where we were at 9-11. Um, we did not have an integrated, you know, operations intelligence fusion apparatus. We really didn't. We were, everyone was a stovepipe. Uh, people hid information from each other because they wanted to go to their bosses and tell them, hey, look what I found. Um, it, it, was, it, it was a mess, and we all knew it, and we worked through it and trained through it, but we really hadn't been put in a situation like 9-11 that it was time to all come together. Right. Um, e- even within the special operation forces, I mean, you had, we're better than you, you know, you're do this, you don't do that. I mean, it really kind of got ridiculous. But after 9-11, that piece came through. To me, I mean, I- and I love telling the story, you know, I walked back in my office and the commander of JSOC and the SOCOM commander said, hey, pack your kit, pack your suits, uh, the G4 is waiting for you, go to Washington, go see Secretary Rumsfeld. And I'm saying, okay. And, uh, you know, I'm a major, Uh, you know, I'm a major. I just, I'm just like, Hey, my country's been attacked. Give me my gun. You know, hut, hut, where are we going? Right. And so I fly to Washington and it's like a ghost town. And I end up at the five o'clock, uh, the DCI, the director of central intelligence, George Tenn at the time he had this five o'clock meeting every night and all the principals, you know, I kind of, creep into this little room and I walk in and all these people in suits and this guy stands up and says, Hey, are you the Delta guy? That, that became my nickname. For <laughs> the a Delta couple months. guy. The Delta, oh, guy. That's the Delta guy. Yeah. I said, yes, sir. I said, yes, sir. I am. His name was Buzzy Krungard. And, uh, he was the, he was the, um, uh, George Tenet's kind of civilian advisor. And he goes, Hey, you come up here next to the old man. And, and I'd seen pictures of Tenet before, but I'd never met him. And you know, here's this guy with this big cigar in his mouth. And, uh, I, and I swear he slept in the same suit every night. He showed up in the same thing, white shirt, blue tie, dark pants. But he leaned over to me and he says, uh, he says, he says, hey, man, he says, how you doing? I said, good, sir. He says, you know why you're here? I said, uh, no, sir, I really don't. And he says, the president has given me the mission to invade Afghanistan. And I really don't know what I'm going to do. So I need you here to help us plan to invade Afghanistan. Just think you can do that? I said, yes, sir, I can. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very humbling experience. I bet. You know, for me, I mean, you know, for me, I mean I'm, I'm, 
you know, I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty well known about kind of just getting out there, kicking the doors in, meeting people and just start connecting. And that's what I did. Um, you know, I got my, I got, you know, that door slammed on my face. Hey, you can't come in here. You're a DOD guy. And I, I pushed it back open and said, yep, I can be here. And we really just started growing this relationship between people and, um, you know, starting to exchange information and push it. And, you know, and then the CIA guys started to really figure out very quickly that they couldn't do it without DOD. Right. And, um, so, I mean, I mean, I, heck, I mean, it, we could talk hours about this along, but it really, we started from zero, you know, it was, you know, a lot of folks, you know, if you, if you got some former military folks out there, you know, the old adage, crawl, walk, run, mm-hmm. but we want, we went from crawling to walking to running, uh, in about eight hours because we had to, because our nation needed us to, right. it the wasn't line. easy. Right. It, yeah, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. But everyone kind of kicked in and said, hey, man, we need to do this. And people started, you know, getting together. But, you know, there's, I'll tell you one other great story. We were targeting uh, Mullah Omar, the big one-eyed, you know, uh, guy down in Kandahar. Jackpot. And, you know, you're, you know, you're in this big room and got all these famous case officers from the CIA. And everyone is, you know, they're talking about this Mullah Omar guy. And I'm, I, turned this, I turned this one uh, lady, I said, I said, hey, don't you guys have like this, this organization that that's all they do is study these people? She goes, yeah, that's the director of intelligence, and they're in that other tower over there. I said, okay. So I walked over there and I just started snooping around and I said, hey, is there anyone over here who knows about Mullah Omar? And you know, I go up to this floor and this little lady in tennis shoes, literally in tennis shoes, in this little cubicle with maps and everything all over the place. And <laughs> I, can I said, see it now. I said. I said, ma'am, I said, I'm Major Jim Reese. I'm from the Delta Force. And she kind of looked up at me. And I said, do you know who Mullah Omar is? She goes, I've only been studying him for about 25 years. I said, can you come with me? And we went down the elevator. We went all the way over to the counterterrorism center. And I said, hey, guys, meet Mrs. X. She knows everything we need to know about Mullah Omar. And, you know, kind of everyone's lights went on that we, we even in our own organizations were so stovepipe at times you don't even realize mm-hmm. uh, who, who the people know this information. So yeah, it's been a and, and I can't even imagine where we are 19 years later. Well, you know, it's the whole collaboration and the collaborative effort of intelligence gathering, and and you were really at the genesis of that um, that has brought us to the point today as we kind of circle back to this mission that we just saw unfold. Um, you know, former DOD myself and spent a lot of time growing up in the intelligence community. I look at that type of mission and I look at the strategic, as you said, the surgical breach. And the first thing that came to mind as I'm listening to this is just the inordinate amount of intel that team had on that plant, on that location, that parcel of land. And, you know, the, the thing I want everyone to understand that they're listening is that you know, when, when Delta went in there, it's not like they were able to send somebody to the local clerk's office and get the building plans of where Baghdadi was hanging out. And there were no plans to know about those tunnels. That was human intelligence that was derived from the intelligence community in a variety of ways. And, and that, uh, Colonel, that's where I'm going with this. I mean, that, that's the, that had to be a significant part of the success of that operation. Would you agree with that or, or not? Not. I mean, I would. I mean, the intelligence is key. 
I mean, we, we Delta prides itself on literally being able to go on a target with no intelligence. Right. And, you know, and, and we do, we train like this. I mean, it's, it's the kind of the forefront of Delta. You know, we want to go in from multiple breach points. We free flow and, you know, we take a target down, but, but when you have that type of intelligence that our human operators today, both our own, the ones that we're working with and, you know, that, you know, are the SDF Kurds, and the the uh, the Peshmerga Kurds over the KRG, and you know all our other assets. I mean that as an operator plan to go in, the more information you, you have, especially like those tunnels and things. I mean it it just it just helps. No question. And it now, gives it gives the guy some peace of mind. No question. Now, being that you just arrived back in the states from Syria after spending time with the Syrian Defense Force Commander uh, General Maslom. Please share with us how important our relationship is with both the Syrian Democratic Council and the Kurds, especially as it related to this mission. I mean, it's it really, in, to my mind, in Syria right now, it is the number one factor of why we're doing so well. I think a lot of people need to reminder, the fight for ISIS, the battle of ISIS, the um, Rojava area, Rojava is what, the people of eastern Syria call that area Rahaba. And it's just not Kurds. It's Kurds, it's Arabs, it's Assyrians, which would impresses me of all my trips in there. I mean, these people just want to have a, you know, put a roof over their head, send their kids to school, uh, you know, make some money and, and live happily ever after. And they're doing that, you know, in a multicultural environment, multi-ethnic environment. You know, so when people, I mean, it's the Kurds, no question, it's the largest majority of people, but everyone's working together. And I'm in these meetings. I mean, there's Kurdish, there's Arabs, uh, you know, there's Christians all in the same meetings, and they're all working together. But it is the number one factor of why we're doing well. And remember this, the, the SDF, Kurd, Christian, Arab, lost 11,000 soldiers over this four-year fight against ISIS. I believe the last time I checked, um, the U.S. lost eight during the fight for ISIS. Right. And, and, and I have to check that number, but mm-hmm. 11,008. No, I mean, we don't want to lose anybody, but the SDF has pulled their weight in this fight over there. No question about that. I'm so glad that you've confirmed that too, Colonel. Now, um, You've seen an awful lot. You're going back to, to 9-11. Uh, we all have our intimate memories of engaging from, that, from day one. Um, but let me ask you your opinion. How would you compare Baghdadi to bin Laden as true leaders amongst Islamic radical terrorists? Different and the same. I think Baghdadi um, was more engaged uh, you know, once, you know, bin Laden had a lot of physical ailments and, um, you know, he was, he was more, you know, he was a more a theologian and, uh, you know, he was writing all the time and doing these things where Baghdadi, I mean, he got out there. Um, he, you know, he, he, you know, he was kind of a, you know, be on the ground leader, you know, lead by walking around. Now that's tough to do when you've got, you know, the plight of the United States military, you know, and, and the intelligence folks in the whole world looking for you. So he really got to watch your six. But um, I mean, I think that's the big difference. I mean, they both 
worked uh, diligently in the, from the caliphate aspect and trying to mentally, you know, um, influence people and, and their fight and why, why it's important. Um, but I think the biggest difference was is uh, Baghdadi, you know, was moving around, trying to move around the battlefield and to, um, you know, kind of be a, you know, be that type of leader that his, his, his people and his soldiers could see at times where bin Laden, as we all know, you know, he went to ground and you never really saw him again right. other than, you know, his, his messages. Now, um, Baghdadi was obviously influential in uh, revolutionizing Islam, the, the recruitment of Islamic radicalists by using the internet and social media. Do you think this is something that's going to continue? Because part of my question there and part of my summation when we finish up today is for people to really understand that this was a great mission. This is a huge nail in the coffin, but there are a lot more nails that need to go in that coffin. Um, do you think that, that his methodology of continuing to recruit and train over the Internet and social media is going to continue? Oh, there's no question. I mean, you know, ISIS, what, I mean, X, X organization, Y extremist organization. It doesn't matter the name. That will continue. I mean, that this is, this is a mindset for some of these people. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and for, for you, his, you know, for you, for you historians out there, this is not something new. I mean, you can go back throughout history. You can go to Northern Ireland and look at this, too, from, you know, the Protestants and the Christians and, you know, an, ex an extremism. We have it here in our own U.S. Uh, we have our own internal extremism. So, no, it's not stopping. Um, I don't know if many of your listeners have heard, but, you know, Baghdadi's number two was taken down last night also. Right. So he was he was killed, which is just, just being reported right now. Right. So, um, the, you know... The and remember this is this is manhunting and right now the National Command Authority with you know the JSOC in the inner in the um, the uh, the the intelligence community the IC community they are right now in the find fix finish uh, the F3 EAD methodology of manhunting and so when you get a guy like Baghdadi then his number two this intelligence is hot and they are using. They are, they are using the success for operations to go boom, boom, boom. And that's what we've really gotten good at over the years is continue to follow up, go to the next one. Even if you don't get someone, the intelligence on those targets will drive you to another target. Right. And that's what, that's, that's, that's what this organization has become now in 18 years. It's, boy, I would not want to be on the, on the receiving Opposite edge end of that knowing one. these guys are behind me. I completely, Absolutely. I completely agree. I said, well, you know, one of the difficult parts that we have you know, as we finish up with today, one of the difficult parts that we have as we look at this is the fact that ISIS, as opposed to Al-Qaeda, ISIS is a decentralized organization. The manner in which they recruit, the cells operating on their own, um, it, much more difficult in order to, especially within the United States, to track cells, to track leaders, etc. So this, the more intel, the better. And that's the message out to everybody. You know, the, the, the more intel, the better. What happened here was a successful mission on multiple fronts. And, and, and as the colonel is saying, also, as we look at this, a lot of the intel that's going to come from whatever information was able to be extrapolated from that compound or, uh, or as a result of this mission is going to be analyzed and acted upon expeditiously as well. My last question, Colonel, how much will this curtail the threat of ISIS on American soil? I, I don't think it'll curtail it at all. My I mean, point. it will... 
it will, um, you know, there'll be a little hiccup. Um, there'll be a reshuffling, just like we do in our military. The res- there's a reshuffling of the chain, the chain of command, and then, you know, they come at us again. I mean, there's a reason why they're, they're calling this, you know, a generational fight. Right. It sure is. Um, it's going to be multi-generational fights. And it just breaks my heart that my, that my children will be doing the same thing, uh, you know, when I'm at my end of my life. Um, and my grandchildren will probably be doing the same thing, too. Uh, but it's the, real, it's, it's, the real, it's the reality of the world we're living in today. And that is the reality of the world we're living in. And everything that we've seen is, you know, from this mission speaks to uh, the synchronization, the intellect, the preparedness, the collaboration of efforts and intelligence gathering, and the superior deployment of our special forces. We need to take a moment. And we need to step back, as Americans, we need to step back, as the world community needs to step back and really admire what these men and women are doing to provide and continue to provide a level of freedom in our country that I think sometimes is taken for granted. What we need to make sure of is we need to listen to what, you know, Colonel Reese has been saying here, Uh, especially as as we close down for today, the thing we need to take with us is this, is that this is a great mission and a lot of wonderful things were accomplished with respect to protecting Americans and protecting democracy. But we're in the embryonic stage of this fight, so don't shake your head off on this one. And do not be misled to thinking that ISIS is not going to continue to move on our soil. In fact, I would go so far to say that as many military experts are saying right now, Colonel, retaliatory efforts are things that we're looking at right now could be a very real possibility. With all that said, uh, Jim, I can't thank you enough uh, for, to have you on today. On behalf of everyone here at CBS News Radio and the entire staff at Security Matters, we want to thank, uh, we, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we want, to t- we want to thank Lieutenant Colonel Jim Reese for, for joining us today. So Jim, I hope you uh, will consider coming back on and please know that we're eternally grateful for you taking the time to be with us today. Paul, thanks. It's been an honor, and uh, you know, thanks for doing what you do. I certainly, I certainly appreciate you being here, Jim. Stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. We come back. We'll finish up today. Stay with me. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The Pentagon is declassifying video and photos of the raid that killed ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. They could be released by tomorrow. Meanwhile, President Trump is praising the dog that cornered al-Baghdadi at his hideout in northwestern Syria. David Martin is at the Pentagon. David, good morning. So what more do we know today about this mission? We now know that after further testing to confirm his identity, al-Baghdadi's remains have been buried at sea. So al-Baghdadi is dead, but ISIS is not. And the mission now is to use the intelligence collected in Saturday's raids to go after the rest of his network. Now, back to Security Matters with Paul Violas. 
Welcome back to Security Matters. I'm Paul Violas, and that was retired Lieutenant Colonel Jim Reese. Um, can't emphasize enough just the the incredible sacrifice that that the Colonel Reese has has put in, and as all of our operators do, all of our military does on a daily basis, all of our military families do on a daily basis. What I want to wind up with today, and we're going to take a minute, and we're just going to finish up, but this is really, really important. We put our arms around this. What we saw was, was, was a spectacular mission, mission of precision and deployment of force to eliminate an evil, evil person and people that compromised the very well-being of the human race. So in that side of this, we need to understand that that was uh, you know, a, a very successful mission. On the other side of this, we need to be very careful. We need to be very careful because we need to understand that ISIS is alive and well. They operate in West Africa, Libya, Egypt, Sinai Peninsula, Afghanistan, Philippines, Europe, and yes, in the U.S. We know that they have between 10 and 18,000 strong documented fighters in Syria and Iraq alone. We have no idea how many people they're recruiting on a daily basis over the internet and social media. And I leave us with this. We need to make sure, and I'll piggyback on something Colonel Reese said, we need to make sure that we keep our eye on the ball because this fight's going to continue and it's going to continue for generations to come. Uh, they're going to continuously use different methodologies and strategies to modify their trajectory into our way of life. And there is no question that they're recruiting right here on American soil. So where we celebrate on one hand, the other part about this is we need to be very careful. Also, we need to understand one piece of this mission more than anything. That's right, more than anything. And that is the intelligence that we gather in our military is critical for two things. One, the success of our military in maintaining the freedom of the United States and all of our assets. And two, it's imperative for all of us to understand that the information that we gather from sources like the Kurds was a direct result of the success of this mission. Sometimes a lot of Americans will sit back and they say, you know, what the hell are we doing in this country? We need to get out of that country, okay? All I ask is this. I'm not asking for everybody to get a free pass, but what I am asking is this. Hit the pause button and think of this. If you play chess, the last thing you want to do is expose that king and queen. And by exposing that king and queen, you risk losing that game. Well, the United States can't afford that in our military strategy. We are in certain places for, for very specific reasons. And oftentimes, the military simply cannot and should not share that with the American public. End of story. That's it. It's a need-to-know basis, and we need to trust that the decisions they're making, they're making to, the, to enhance our safety and our freedom as Americans. What we saw here was a tremendous success. But rest assured, we'll be doing this again and again and again. Let's keep our eye on the ball, especially as it pertains to things that we see and we hear on social media, things that are being said in our own communities, because there is no question that ISIS is alive and well and breathing on American soil. 
we need to continuously protect our way of life from Islamic radicalists. This was a success, but it's an example of something we're going to continue to do as time goes on. Congratulations to everybody in Delta, everybody that was a part of that, all the intelligence community that provided it. Congratulations on behalf of everybody here at CBS News Radio. On behalf of everybody here at Security Matters, appreciate you listening. Look forward to catching up with you next week. Be safe, be well, God bless. Thanks for listening to Security Matters with Paul Violas. The podcast is produced by Seth Nyman and CBS News Radio. For more podcasts from CBS News, visit cbsaudio.com slash podcasts. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.